Welcome back to Decouple. Today I'm joined by Jigger Shah. Jigger is the director of the U.S. Department of Energy Loans Program Office. And in his previous lives, he's been a prominent clean energy entrepreneur, author, and podcast host advocating for market-based solutions to climate change. Jigger, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for having me. I love this podcast. Ah, oh, that's very kind of you to say. Listen, I've got some uh, worries and preoccupations uh, about U.S. nuclear, and I, I might even go so far as to say that the sector is in crisis. Uh, I'm basing that off of a, of a few points. Um, there's no firm orders in the books for ready-to-build nuclear designs in the U.S. Russia and Korea are eating your lunch in the export market, um, which China also seems poised to enter. Uh, China and Russia are leading with deployment of non-water-based nuclear technologies, uh, high-temperature gas reactors, a molten salt reactor coming online in China, and of course the sodium fast reactor programmed in Russia. I mean, this list is long, but <laughs> I'll keep going. Uh, American first-of-a-kind designs like the AP-1000 and X-300 uh, being developed overseas and not on American soil. Um, you know, Vogel online last week, uh, but I think shook the confidence of many that the U.S. can deliver on nuclear. So Today, I'm hoping to do no less than figure out the diagnosis for what's ailing U.S. nuclear and map out a path to the cure. Um, <laughs> I just shared with you, I'm a medical doctor, so I like my little medical metaphors there. Uh, but first, <laughs> Jigger, you have an impressive resume. Um, why don't you take a moment to expand on my, my pretty bare bones introduction? No, look, I mean, I don't know that your bare bones introduction was wrong. I mean, look, the the U.S. nuclear industry is one that um, has wowed the world uh, with an extraordinary track record of safety as well as um, uprates and you know engineering excellence and operations and all of those things, right? Um, which I think is wonderful, right? And, and so I think we have a lot to be proud of. That being said, uh, you know Vogel is the first nuclear reactor that you know has been sort of conceived of and turned on in the last 30 years, really, right? I mean, Watts Bar and others were sort of like old ones that were completed. And then, you know, I think it's the first one that was conceived of and and turned on solely under the NRC. All the previous reactors really started under the Atomic Energy Commission and then were sort of regulated by the Nuclear Regulatory Commission, right? So so there's some new stuff that we're working on um, here in the U.S. And, and I, I, the other thing I'd say is that you know, for a lot of the supply chain of the nuclear industry, uh, we um, have been doing uh, very interesting things to help other folks out, right? So we were buying a lot of our fuel from uh, China and Russia, right? And then the non-Luger uh, framework, right, where we were helping uh, the Russians to, you know, uh, decommission a lot of their nuclear weapons and and then use a lot of that nuclear material, right, in uh, more productive ways. And so, the U.S. has done a lot of good around the world, and the NRC, I think, is still the gold standard uh, for regulation around the world. Um, that being said, you know, I think that outside of China, I wouldn't say that anyone is really thriving in the nuclear industry, not you know, at the scale and speed that we need to meet the threats of climate change. So I think the U.S. is firmly in the hunt and can take a lot of proactive steps today to um, you know, to fully realize its leadership position, given that I think we do have the best nuclear designs in the world. Okay, well, that's a, that's a great place to start. I didn't mean to throw too much at you all at once. And I do want to get to know you too, Jigger. That's one yeah, of the joys no worries. Of, of podcasting <laughs> that I'm sure, uh, I'm sure you uh, enjoyed on the Energy Gang, which was your podcast back in the day. Um, so 
You grew up near the Byron Nuclear Station, um, I believe, um, from some of my sleuthing. My private investigator tells me. Um, <laughs> can you tell me uh, how that uh, impacted your views on, on nuclear power? I think you had a real start in the solar side of things. Um, often there's a bit of antagonism between the camps. Um, tell me more about that. Yeah, I, you know, I um, was, I think, 10 years old when Byron turned on, right? So it was like, I think, 1984. Um, so it was a big news story in the area. I grew up in Sterling, Illinois, which is about, I think, 40 miles or 50 miles from Byron. And um, and Byron was in our sports conference for some of the sports that I played. So, you know, when you'd go to Byron, um, you notice that they had, you know, awesome facilities, right? Like brand new amphitheater, great indoor swimming pool, and all those things that a nuclear community usually benefits from. And so, you know, I don't know that I, you know, got involved too deeply into nuclear power or or those things. But, you know, you hear all these positive stories that came out of it, which was reinforced by what I saw with my eyes, which was great. Um, and then, you know, when I was around 16, I really got involved in energy and, you know, fell in love with both nuclear and solar. Um, but at the time, you know, nuclear was a basket case um, and there weren't really any, you know, ways to build new nuclear. Um, and solar actually had a pathway to um, being fully realized. And so, you know, my career took me through the the solar phase, but, you know, certainly um, I've always been, um, you know, rec I've, I've always recognized the benefits of nuclear. And now you're heading up uh, the loans program office. We have a pretty international uh, listenership. Um, so if you could take a moment to explain, you know, its mandates and the nuts and bolts of, of how it works. That'd be awesome to provide some context. Yeah. I mean, the loan programs office was invented in the 2005 Energy Act and then, you know, really came into being during, you know, the Obama era um, uh, stimulus bill, right? The era stimulus bill. And so that's where we, you know, issued around 30 plus billion dollars worth of new loans. And, you know, we've been monitoring and managing a lot of the construction of those loans for some time, uh, Vogel being... Uh, one that's been in construction the longest, and Unit 3 coming on board soon. Um, but the ultimate uh, conception of the Loan Programs Office was that there were certain sectors that just weren't getting a fair shake from um, the private sector, not because they're bad technologies, but just the private sector didn't feel like it really had a mandate to um, provide debt to those markets. Nuclear was first uh, in on that list in 2005, and then there were fossil energy and renewable energy titles that were added later. Um, and then the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program, where we famously loaned money to Tesla, Ford, Nissan, and others. Um, and then most recently, we added uh, the Tribal Energy Loan Program, as well as um, uh, what's called 1706, which is, allows you to um, replace, retool, um, repower uh, existing assets. And so we can... Use that uh, to turn on, you know, recently shut down nuclear reactors, or to add uh, new nuclear reactors to existing footprints, um, or to convert a, you know, old coal plant that's, you know, seeing the end of life uh, to a nuclear plant. Right, right. That's fascinating. I didn't realize that the LPO had nuclear in its mandate right from the get-go, and it seems like kind of the perfect vehicle, as you were saying, to make um, a sector that's struggling thrive. Um, Maybe jumping ahead here, and it's obviously a huge question. Um, but ro what role has the LPO played so far? Were they involved in helping to finance Vogel, for instance? And if not, um, 
what sort of things are you dreaming up um, in your current position as a way to to get this industry back on track? Given that the the challenges seem to be so much, I mean, there's many challenges. <laughs> I always say nuclear is a bit like the Olympics, and your your athlete needs to be uh, in top shape in every in all sorts of ways. But from that financing perspective, give me a sense of the of the history again and potentially the path forward. So the loan programs office uh, is basically a um, a debt vehicle, right? So by definition, we're private sector led and government enabled, right? So the private sector has to tell us what it wants to do, and then they have to apply to us for a loan. And then we evaluate the loan and make sure it meets the reasonable prospect of repayment, and then we issue a loan. So for Vogel, we provided three loans, one in 2014, one in 2015, and one in 2019. Um, and so we've got you know roughly $12 billion of exposure um, to the Vogel nuclear plant. And you know when you look at the way in which that deal was structured, I think we have every confidence that we'll get paid back in full and that the project will perform as desired, right? But I, I do think that um, we are, you know, definitively pro-capitalism here. Um, and I think the nuclear industry, frankly, hasn't been for a very long time. And so the question really becomes, how does capitalism and nuclear interact with each other? Because when I hear case studies from people that they want us to copy, I hear, Hey, Jigger, it'd be really good if the government just did everything and left the private sector out of it and just let us like make all the money on the back end. Or I hear, hey, it'd be great if, you know, like we could just, you know, just have all the US military bases do this for us so that we didn't have to do it, right? In the in the utility sector. And I think the, the loan programs office, you know, rejects that as the central premise for how the nuclear industry should operate. And we believe the nuclear industry is capable of being a professionally run industry that actually knows how to construct things on time and on budget and, you know, figures out how to uh, do proper planning up front and integrated project delivery models with their contracts and all those things. And I do think the loan programs office has more recently played a very useful role in, you know, slapping the nuclear industry silly and getting them to understand what it means to actually show real leadership. I think they were complaining like a small child five years or six years ago. And today, I think the level of seriousness that has come out of the nuclear liftoff report that we published, as well as a lot of the fact-finding missions that we've led into what went wrong with Vogel, and what it means to actually run a private sector-led, government-enabled nuclear industry, I think has led to far more productive conversations today than we've had in decades. Well, I mean, certainly looking at the, you know, eye-watering cost of Vogel, I think uh, I was just chatting with a friend, fact-checking this, but about 12,000 uh, per kilowatt in overnight building costs. And I think in, you know, the numbers out of China, I think are, are probably rightly looked at as maybe being unreliable. Um, but certainly Korea, you know, three to 5,000 per kilowatt hour, that's, you know, half to a third the cost of, of what's happening in the U.S., um, you were mentioning this desire for it to, you know, have capitalist uh, uh, flavor to to the U.S. nuclear industry in terms of the LPO support. Um, you know, Korea is obviously a, a different model. It is a capitalist country, uh, but they are pursuing, I think, a very standardized approach with a kind of a national design. How how do you see the kind of differences there? I mean, I think things are just so different in America compared to a country like Korea. But I mean, also a, a capitalist country um, and one that is is delivering nuclear. Um, you know, fairly competently. Um, what do you think I we can like learn from? I feel like capitalist is a strong word when referring sure. to the nuclear industry in Korea, right? You're talking about basically a fully government-backed 
program where the private sector takes almost no downside financial risk. And, you know, they're building the same reactor over and over again, which is great. But like you tell me right now, do you think the Koreans are going to solve all the problems in South Africa, converting all their coal plants to uh, nuclear with ESCOM and the state of the South African government? Are you confident that they're going to do the same in India where, you know, you've got um, a whole bunch of state-run electric utilities. You've got a couple of federal uh, entities in India, et cetera. Like, think about where all the coal in the world is being burned, and you tell me whether the UAE-Korean partnership is what you would bet on to, you know, figure out how to convert all of those coal plants to nuclear. I mean, I would say it's it's more credible. I mean, the UAE is obviously a very different country from the countries you're mentioning, uh, but you do have an established record domestically of delivering nuclear um, well, and you have, I mean, what's, what's the counterexample in terms of, you know, what there the are US no counterexamples, but exactly. I think you're off yeah. your rocker. I mean, the notion for us, a, a hot second, right. That the Japanese government would go into South Africa using JBIC building, you know, uh, you know, uh, a nuclear reactor there and that everyone would fall in line, right. That the world bank would provide financing that you'd get debt from the IFC, et cetera, that would never work. Never in a million years. I mean, I think it shows a gross misunderstanding for how the power sector has actually rolled out across the world. The vast majority of these projects are project financed. They're not states financed, right? So you're saying, hey, Jigger, all of the places around the world that have state-sponsored financing, we have success stories in. And the other 98% of the world, we have no success in. And so I think you should use the case studies in the 2% of the world where we have all the stars that are aligning and prove that we can serve the other 98%. There are no counterexamples to that whatsoever. It's just a fanciful argument. Well, I don't think I'm making an argument here that that is the only approach, Uh, but there are, you know, so few examples um, of countries outside of, say, I mean, Russia is the dominant nuclear exporter right now. I guess what worries me about- of nuclear reactors, large nuclear reactors. Yeah, that's there's, great. There's not a lot, and so what? There's, like, there's like four? And so now we're saying like they're the dominant provider of large nuclear reactors in well, the world? Well, I mean, they are. I'm not saying they should be or that is the no, only model. Like, don't, don't, get me, fa- don't get me no, wrong. No, no, the reason I'm getting you wrong is because I feel like we have a bunch of people who are pro-nuclear in Canada and the United States who need to get their heads screwed on straight. We are in a place right now where we need nuclear to step up and step up big at the gigawatt scale, right? The hundred, hundreds of gigawatt scale, right? And we're not having a serious conversation. Like what people need to understand is how global finance works, right? That's the conversation you had in your last podcast. And so what exactly is it that we have done to mobilize capital around the world? We've created monopoly utility companies, right? And many countries around the world, including Caribbean islands and, you know, India and other places, right? We have financing structures that support those folks, right? We have, you know, refueling and maintenance mechanisms around the world, right? So let's have a real serious conversation about how this works. Let's leave the engineering, you know, sort of utopia behind and let's have a real conversation around what it is that you think and your compatriots think is necessary from the U.S. government or other related governments, whether it's Canada or the U.K. or others, to actually get this done at speed and scale. 
Well, we'll paint for me uh, your vision. Again, I'm, I'm not bringing up what I think are perfect examples or models. As I said, I think there's, you know, uh, uh, a severe lacking uh, of nuclear exports to nations that desperately need nuclear energy. But what is your alternative? Um, and, and is there any historic basis for it in terms of, in terms of nuclear Well, exports? as the person I mean, who could, helped build, build the first trillion dollars of solar, yes, there's an alternative to it. And the fact that folks don't want to recognize the, fa- the, the sheer just extraordinary nature of what solar and wind has accomplished is a huge problem, right? You're talking about over 100 countries now that have gigawatts of solar operating as well as wind, right? And the way we did that was to figure out how to project finance every one of those deals, including in places like Pakistan, where nobody wants to do business, right? Right. We figured out how to assemble private sector capital in Pakistan. The distinction I'm making here, Jigger, is I think wind and solar are relatively easy construction projects. What are you talking about? No, they're not. You're building, you're building, well, let, let me, let me explain myself. You're building, I mean, compared to nuclear, Okay, I think we could both agree on that. You're, no, you're basically I, we can't installing, agree on that either. No, you say wind no. and solar are easy. That wind and that nuclear and wind and solar are similar in their construction complexity, their ease of construction, their ease of project delivery. I think you guys have created some sort of construct to convince yourselves that the reason why nuclear hasn't succeeded is because they're complicated. Nuclear isn't complicated. Nuclear is is structured perfectly in a way to never be able to be built by a Western country. It's basically saying we have no, we are going to make every single nuclear plant an average of 10 to $15 billion each. How about we start there, right? There is no insurance company or EPC contractor that is capable of wrapping such a large project, right? There is no utility balance sheet that's able to manage that, Comfortably, and in fact, almost every single nuclear or every single utility bankruptcy that's occurred in the last 40 years has involved nuclear. So everyone's scared out of their mind on nuclear to the point where Wall Street said we will never fund nuclear. And we had to create the loan programs office in 2005 to do that, right? So now you're saying, well, no, it can't be that. It can't be that we screwed up the whole concept of finance. That like, what it is, is that nuclear is super complicated and it's so hard to build. No, you know what's complicated? Building a data center. You know what's complicated is building, you know, like a, uh, you know, a hospital or a facility that actually, you know, has to uh, create petrochemicals. Have you been to an oil refinery? Extraordinary piece of engineering, Right. We do that all day. What Dow and DuPont used to do in China and other places to create these, these you know, cracking facilities and all these facilities, we know how to build complicated, hard stuff. What we don't know how to do is to manage mega projects at the $15 billion scale. And frankly, China has proven that it can't do it either, which is why all of its nuclear reactors are behind schedule and over budget. Now it's getting better at it and it's, it's optimizing around a single design, which is great. But like this is not because solar and wind are easier, you know, any knucklehead could do it. It's because we figured out how to get the world's largest EPC contractors to create an entire division to do something that's very complicated in a straightforward and easy manner where they replicate it over and over again. And we were able to make it $2 billion or less 
so that they can get insurance. They can work through MEGA at the World Bank. They could work through all of the different features that are available and actually work with the countries that want them in a way that works. And in fact, what happened was some of the countries couldn't handle 2 billion. So we had to downgrade a lot of the projects to 100 megawatt and 200 megawatt projects because that's the only thing they could handle from a risk perspective when you asked all the parties around the table, right? But I just think that, like, I feel like we as, you know, human beings and certainly as Americans can accomplish the impossible. Like, we could do whatever we set our mind to, right? So I have no doubt in my mind that we can figure this out. But we all have to figure out what the playing field looks like, what the, what the, the, the board looks like, and then figure out what the Venn diagram leads us to, you know, choosing as the right design, as the right approach, as the right set of tools that we may need to add because we don't have them today. So let's actually solve the hard stuff instead of shouting into the wind, which is frankly what the nuclear industry has been doing for 10 years. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll have to agree to disagree and in, in, in obviously maybe a few points throughout this interview. I think there's some parallels in terms of construction complexity with, as you're mentioning, um, these oil and gas facilities, but I will maintain that it is far be easier to, um, to as a construction project, to build a large wind and solar installation than a nuclear plant. Let's leave that if aside. If it makes you sleep better at night, you should agree with whatever you want to. Okay, sure, sure. Um, help me understand then what your vision is going forward, um, because you've, you've critiqued mine and, and maybe you're unscrewing my head or, or screwing it on tighter. Um, let, let me get a sense of of I don't what, have what a your, vision, what your right? vision is. My vision is a process. Right. So what what I'm saying is that when you look at what happened with Vogel, you and I both agree that unit three, you know, was way over cost and over budget. Unit four was about 30% cheaper. And that if we had built, you know, VC Summer, it probably would have been cheaper still, right? It probably would have gone that sure, way. Yeah. But you try to go to South Carolina and get them to restart that project and rate base it. No way in hell, right? It bankrupted the utility to the point where it had to be you know, forcibly sold to another company, right? And so now we've got Poland that wants to build those reactors, which is great. And we're going to support them 100% to do that. And then if they succeed, we'll bring it back. But, you know, what we are is private sector-led government-enabled. So we've, we've, you know, interviewed everybody in the industry and they've said that they want to do SMRs, right? So I'm like, okay, you know, if you want me to lobby them to AP1000s, I can, but they don't want to do them. So that here I am. Right. And so, so you're limited, now, you're limited by what, what the industry is asking for is, is what you're saying. And, of course, and I, I right? guess, I mean, cause I, I provide mean, do, debt. So do you have, yeah, right. And in so doing, I mean, are you developing opinions on, on the best path forward or it's simply, you know, having to conform to, uh, markets as they exist now? I mean, I, I know that, you know, you have, you have a limited role here, so I'm not trying to, you know, take you out of your wheelhouse. Yeah, I mean, but, I have, I have opinions, right. But it doesn't really yeah. matter what my opinions is first, because, I'm not the smartest person in nuclear, but second, because, um, you know, like it, it, we have to play this, you know, convening role, right? So we're equally impressed with, you know, new scale, you know, Holtex new reactor, G Itachi, right? Uh, the natrium reactor that TerraPower is building, right? X Energy, and there's others, right? We provided ARDPs to uh, Kairos and, you know, Oklo and all sorts of, you know, reactors, right? So now I, I go to folks and say, hey, you ran an RFP. Which one do you want, right? And they pick one, right? So Darlington obviously has picked the G Itachi reactor, which is wonderful, 
right? And so they are now moving forward with that. And then OPG, TVA, and Synthos has said, look, we learned the lessons from Vogel, and we're going to spend a full $400 million up front to complete the design before we actually go in so that we can actually have all of the you know, pieces in place and we can learn from the experience at Palo Verde and other places where it went a lot more smoothly when you actually had the designs completed, right? And so that's happening. Separately, there was a lot of lessons learned out of Vogel around the integrated project delivery model. So OPG has put forward their integrated project delivery model, which is really great. And TVA is now saying, we think we can improve upon that model. So they're working through all the contracts to improve upon those models to make sure that there really is uh, you know, a level of synchronization between all the contractors and that they don't have the uh, incentive to basically just cost plus the contracts and run up the score, right? There should be real consequences to them if they don't um, do what they say. But the other thing that they're doing is that they're not lying to themselves, right? I mean, I think there were a lot of people that were very smart in 2009, 2010, who said that Vogel was going to cost double what um, folks were saying that it was going to cost, Right. And, and so when you look at the um, modeling work that TVA and OPG are doing, they're not lying to themselves. They believe that the first reactor will be a lot more expensive than, you know, $2 billion. And they believe it'll come down in cost when, as they build the four pack and the, you know, the team that's installing it are trained. And we outlined that cost reduction curve very uh, clearly in the liftoff report that we published. Um, and that, comes from industry, right? So I don't need to guess what industry believes. That is what they're telling us is going to happen. The first reactor is probably going to be $10 a watt, maybe, you know, $12 a watt, right? Just like Vogel. And then it'll come down by 30% and then another 10, another 10. And we actually show you exactly where that cost reduction might come from. And that's all from interviewing our friends at OPG and TVA and, and others, right? And if UAMPS gets to the point where they're going to build the new scale reactor, right? Then we'll classify exactly what they're saying as well. Just out of curiosity as a Canadian, is the LPO um, funding any any portion of the Darlington uh, X300 new build or is that outside of Canada and outside of the purview? Yeah, we're not allowed to fund anything outside of the US. But to the extent that they are buying equipment from US suppliers, right, we can fund those US suppliers to scale up their production capacity to be able to meet the needs in Darlington. Got you, got you. Um, can you give me a sense of like, is there a certain amount of, I've, I've heard 40 billion is, is the figure I've heard uh, bandied about in terms of the the total amount of loans, the, the LPOs. I might be completely off on that. That's okay. Um, is there any kind of percentage, is there any kind of percentage breakdown, you know, per sort of technology that you guys are pursuing? And can you give me a sense of that? So the, um, the starting with the loan capacity. So the 1703 program, which is the, you know, one of our oldest programs, which, you know, initially started with nuclear and then, you know, it's been expanded. Um, all of the sort of bucketization of the money is gone. So it's first come, first serve. It's about $73 billion worth of loan authority there. So, you know, so that's available to all go into nuclear or all go into fossil. We just take the applications one at a time as they come in and, you know, process the loans. Uh, we've got about $90 billion worth of loan applications in, I think, for that program. And we've got about 16 and a half billion of that's for nuclear. So, um, so we're excited and not all of that 90 billion is going to, you know, go to the finish line, obviously. So we'll see. Um, but then we also have the $250 billion 1706 program. And that program is to retool, repower, repurpose. 
Um, and so we could build, um, you know, 300, you know, uh, BWRX, you know, 300s if we wanted to out of that program, right? So like we could put $200 billion in a nuclear out of that program. And right now we're not on track to using all that $250 billion worth of capacity. The types of things that people are looking for for that is, um, you know, reconducting transmission lines. Uh, we've got some applications in for folks who are taking old natural gas plants and, you know, reusing that interconnection point to, because a lot of them are running at one to 9% capacity factors, right? Um, they're using that interconnection point to put in solar and battery storage and lots of other things, right? But I, I but I do think it's important to note that um, that there's plenty of resources at this point, right? So there's 73 billion in 1703 and up to 250 billion for nuclear in 1706. And so I don't think there's any lack of resources. I think we're we're right now seeing five or six serious efforts in terms of folks who want to build a new nuclear plant in the United States, which is great. Um, and, you know, we're hoping that that becomes 25, 30, 40. Can you talk about who that is or is that uh, confidential? It's confidential. So I can't, I can't say who it is, but I think you guys know um, through what's public, right? I mean, like, you know, Duke has clearly put a nuclear the integrated resource plan. Dominion has as well. I think Energy Northwest has provided some, um, you know, vocal support for the X Energy reactor. And so, so you've, you've got some data points in the public. Sorry, I, I may have I may have blanked for a second there, but again, forty billion was the initial um, kind of some. You, you mentioned these very large numbers in terms of applications. Yeah, I don't know where in, forty the, billion comes from. So it's seventy three okay. billion in seventeen oh three, and it's two hundred fifty billion in seventeen oh six. Can you explain what seventeen oh three and seventeen oh six means? So seventeen oh three is the original old school program that we had. Gotcha. Um, that you know has always been able to fund nuclear, and right. it relies on innovation, which, as you know, nuclear is. Uh, you know, big fan of innovation, maybe too much innovation uh, as they jump from design to design. And then uh, 1706 is to retool, repower, repurpose, right? Gotcha. So either putting new nuclear plants on existing, you know, nuclear plant sites or, you know, converting uh, retiring coal plants to nuclear. Is there a significant amount of funding going towards uh, wind and solar technologies out of the LPO or is that a technology that's I don't think we're doing any because be they're fully okay. mature now. Okay. Batteries? Batteries obviously have some. Uh, it depends. Like, so we have long duration energy storage batteries, which are, you know, next generation coming in. We've got alternative, uh, you know, alternative um, uh, chemistries, right, for auto manufacturing, et cetera, that SK and LG are promoting, right? So we announced, uh, this is out of the Advanced Technology Vehicle Manufacturing Program. We announced uh, lithium ion battery manufacturing for GMLTM as well as uh, Blue Oval. Um, I think we, yeah. So I think there's there's certainly a lot of interest, but we don't have any lack of loan authority. I think that the the challenge we have is getting the nuclear industry to actually respect the 73-step process they need to go through and actually, you know, start getting to completing the steps as opposed to complaining about what other people have. So that's 73 steps. What do you think are the key things thematically to, to break the stalemate to get utilities ordering new nuclear plants? Is it gonna? Is it gonna take? I think we're on track to breaking the stalemate, right? I think, I think what the nuclear industry, the nuclear utilities want to see, is, uh, you know, a lot less fighting from the nuclear industry, right? It's not great to love nuclear when they're sort of anti-economic development in these states, right? A lot of the 
the economic development happening these days right now are solar and wind. So I think we've got to stop the infighting between the parties. It just causes people to hate nuclear. Do you, do you see infighting the at the level of industry or just, uh, you know, all annoying day long, advocates like everywhere. from the industry itself? It, all day long. Folks are like constantly bad mouthing other people's technologies under their breath and they need the to stop it okay. because we need all of it. We need all solar and wind as much as we could possibly build and as much nuclear as we could possibly build. And even then, I think we're going to fall substantially short to what we need for ChatGBT. <laughs> ChatGBT alone needs 10,000 megawatts of data centers. Yeah. Right? So if people want to live in a modern world, right, they're going to need a lot more electricity. And so we need all of it. So I need to fix what's broken with the nuclear industry and what's broken with the geothermal industry, the low-impact hydro industry, there's a lot of industries that are not scaling. And they're basically spending a lot of their energy bad-mouthing other sectors instead of figuring out how to get through their process, which is going to take 10 years. It's not something that you, we fix in like you know a weekend, right? There has to be $400 million spent to figure out how to get um, you know, all of the designs completed. Then you've got to take the 13,000 people that were trained at Vogel, right? And you've got to figure out how many of them are travelers, how many, how many of them are going to leave the workforce and go get another union job in Georgia and South Carolina because they don't want to move, right? We got to figure out how we actually train workers in a way that actually works. We've got to figure out how we build supply chains. You saw the governor of Tennessee say that they're going to put up $200 million to help support more supply chain growth uh, in the Tennessee uh, you know, region uh, near Oak Ridge National Laboratory. So that's great news to see folks thinking about suppliers, right? But I feel like for whatever reason, people are just like animated about like, why aren't we doing this faster? We're not doing this faster because we forgot to go through the steps that we need to go through over the last 10 years. So now we got to start now and go through the steps over the next 10 years. I mean, there's no better time to start going through the steps than this week. So, I mean, you're, you're famously quoted as uh, saying, deploy, deploy, deploy. Um, with regards to nuclear, um, where do you think that, um, that balance matches with, with innovation? I mean, but again, right? Like, we can do all of it. I think you and I both know that it is unlikely to be a, a Gen 4 reactor that builds the first, you know, uh, reactors here in this country, you know, over the next, you know, three or four years in terms of starting construction, right? And, you know, you saw that with the, the selections that TVA and OPG made. They, you know, chose Gen 3 plus reactors. And largely they chose them, I think, because they believe that they can get those reactors through the NRC and the Canadian regulator in a straightforward fashion because they're basically just improvements on um, existing designs, right? And then separately, I think we're a huge fan of what TerraPower and Natrium is doing as well as X-Energy. And those folks will clearly take longer to get through the NRC and, pro and the Canadian regulator if you know they choose to build them in Canada because they're new approaches, right? And new approaches require a little bit more work uh, to uh, to go through the process. Um, but my sense is that's why they chose the Gen 3 Plus reactors, right? Because they thought that they would move um, more confidently through the process. So I had uh, James Krellenstein on recently, and, and he was talking about the initial sort of R&D for the existing nuclear fleet. And that obviously um, came out of a model where government did most of the R&D 
uh, in the private sector focused mostly on deployment. Um, you know, we have the example of, of SpaceX, another very complex uh, high technology industry, um, which has completely outcompeted, um, you know, the government R&D. I'm wondering, do you see parallels between the space and nuclear industry in terms of uh, your vision of innovation? No, I think the government will always that. have to do innovation. And remember, the private sector didn't do any of the deployment in the 1960s, 70s, and 80s. That Not was deployment, all, yeah. yeah. Right? I mean, that was really all government top-down stuff, right? So, like, I don't know that I would credit the private sector there. I think, in general, but we moved away from that, right? The Department of Energy was formed out of the Atomic Energy Commission, and you know, that's where we are now. But I also think that when you look at SpaceX, right, there's a private sector industry for them, right, which is launching satellites into space. And it used to be, you know, $100 million a launch or whatever with Boeing, and now it's, or Lockheed, and now it's like $10 million a launch or something like that. So, um, you know, they've innovated, but they also have a customer. There is no customer for, you know, private sector nuclear innovation, right? If someone said, you know, um, here's $1.8 billion, which I, like, is what I'm seeing right now, for instance, in Fusion, like, I love fusion. Like, I mean, who doesn't love fusion, right? But putting $1.8 billion into a private sector company on fusion and believing you're going to get a venture capital-like return is bonkers, right? Like, it's very obvious to anyone who has studied clean tech that the only venture capital returns are in scale tech, right? There's no venture capital returns in deep tech. Like, Tesla was not a deep tech investment. Tesla was a Skill tech investment, all of the technologies that they used for the first Model S had been invented previously through R&D that DOE and others had done. They just put it together in a nice package that people wanted to buy. And then they've, of course, innovated the crap out of the software and all the other stuff, which is fantastic, right? But I think it's just critically important to recognize that the government is essential in deep tech investing, right? Which is what nuclear is. Um, and the only thing that venture capital or private equity or others can do is scale tech, right? So, and I think that's fine, right? It's just it's just a thing that people just need to like, you know, I think, you know, understand. Am I misunderstanding then that most of the innovation uh, work happening in the States is driven by uh, private sector venture capital and not government labs? I mean, there's obviously some overlap, but I'm thinking of the, the technology. There's almost no innovation happening out of the private sector. So like the States Natrium Reactor, energy. for instance. Is that government R&D? How or much is that... money did we put into it from the government okay. over like 40 years? That's not a new design even, right? Like we we started doing that work 40 years ago. The same thing's true with, um, you know, the amount of money we put into New Scale, the amount of money we put into the X-Energy concepts. I just look, I'm not suggesting that the private sector hasn't put money into things. I think they have. But the private sector is best suited to actually finish the job, right? To take an R&D technology and figure out how to make it commercial and how to put it into the marketplace. And that's scale tech, right? That's not deep tech. Um, you know, I think, so I think that's, I just think it's, important. yeah, I think that's great framing. And, and this is a good faith question in terms of, am I incorrect? And I'm, I'm glad, oh, I'm I glad know. to be corrected. So, you know, know that I appreciate that. Well, and you know that I love what you're doing in your podcast. I'm being deliberately argumentative like because I'm trying to get through to people yeah. because I feel like people are just, you know, particularly in this industry, people are kind of nice to each other, yeah. but they're not actually talking about the hard truths. There's not that many people who are actually as passionate as you are about nuclear, right? There's like, I mean, you're actually quite passionate, but also like there's not that many people that are passionate, right? But when like Robert Bryce comes on or some of these other folks come on and they're like, here's all the, you know, eight like super simple ways that we could solve this problem and actually all start building nuclear. It's just disingenuous. It's just not true. 
And when you think about how much work we're doing every single day, right? And, you know, frankly, I would say that even G. Itachi is not doing as much work on creating the marketplace for getting the utilities to buy their reactor than we are, which is weird, right? For the government and the loan programs office to be softening the ground better than G. Itachi is, is weird, right? And so I just need everyone to start, like, you know, just getting a little more focused on how they can actually help get the nuclear industry to the finish line, as opposed to why don't we have the shiny toys that these people have over there? No, I think there needs to be far more red teaming. I, I, I'm actually quite bearish um, on <clears throat> many elements of the, the nuclear industry, particularly in North America, but also globally. But I think that's a good place to start in terms of recognizing where we're at um, and how much work needs to be done. Um, and what drives me is just this desire to understand it better. Um, so I, I do appreciate your your. No, I appreciate that. Um, in terms of, um, I mean, do you think we're at the end of um, unnecessary nuclear plant closures, premature nuclear plant closures? Obviously, competitive markets, cheap natural gas prices have had their impact. Um, I think I'm referring more to politically based closures. Um, we're seeing potentially Palisades coming back from the dead. It's too late for Indian Point. I guess my concern here is that we're starting with such a deficit over the last 10 years. I think 56% of retiring capacity in 2021 was nuclear. This is not a good sort of foundation to be building off of. And, and we're on the treadmill, but we've, we've been falling backwards. Do you think we're at the end of, of premature nuclear plant closures and, and why, if, if so? Well, certainly it's the policy of this government to be at the end of premature nuclear plant closures, right? That's why we fought so hard to keep Diablo Canyon open. We worked, you know, really hard on getting the civilian nuclear credit program in place. Um, and so, you know, and I think when you look at where um, wholesale power prices are, I think there is a recognition by most utilities that they have overinvested in gas. And that when, you know, we had these polar vortexes and, and um, you know, these heat domes, that gas has been unreliable um, at the time at which they needed it the most. And so they need to diversify their portfolio. Um, and so gas has a strong role to play, but that other clean firm power generation sources also need to be prioritized, whether it's existing nuclear plants or whether it's new nuclear plants. But the one thing I would say about the nuclear industry on this is that part of the challenge here is that people need to recognize human behavior, right? It's really easy to shut down a nuclear plant when there's no, there's no like positive prospects for nuclear, right? Like when you're bearish, it's really easy to say, well, if you're bearish around new nuclear, why would we keep this nuclear plant running? Right? It's a natural thing you would ask. Well, right? I mean, they, and so they, they should be they should be competitive. Like a paid off nuclear plant with you know rock bottom fuel costs, um, you know, sh should be competitive. But we're in these markets, so called competitive markets, which have have made them uncompetitive. And I think a lot of that has to do with subsidized wind and solar. Eating right, but I think lunch. you're being entirely logical. Like what I'm saying to you is that's not how the market works. Right. Right. The way this works is, is that people want to be bullish about the future, right? So you have to give them something to be bullish about, right? We're going to keep this nuclear plant running, right? And we're going to subsidize it from the state of Illinois' coffers because we believe that new nuclear designs are so awesome that we don't want to lose this workforce, Right? We want to keep these going because, yes, this is a temporary blip and natural gas is prematurely cheap, but it won't be forever. And frankly, that's the American Gas Association saying that. They think that the right price for 
gas should be four fifty to five dollars a million BTU, right? At which point, nuclear is very cost effective. Um, and but like you have to sell someone a vision that's hopeful and positive. Otherwise, they're not going to invest in the previous generation's technologies. Are you really saying though that this pivot back towards nuclear, to nuclear being more popular, to the government intervening on Palisades or assisting Diablo Canyon, it just has to do with you know a psychological impression, or is it more realpolitik of energy security of the U.S. becoming an LNG exporter and you know gas prices are being less arbitrage, I guess, as as natural gas. No, I becomes- think you got to separate all the different things that are happening, right? The realpolitik is like from the fact that you know because of the Ukraine crisis, you've seen a tremendous. Uh, amount of interest uh, from Eastern Europe in new nuclear plants. You're seeing, you know, a lot of interest at the federal government level in the United States in new nuclear plants, right? But plant closures are being done by local state public service commissions. They're not being done by the federal government, and no amount of lobbying from the federal government can but keep being, them like, open, right? I mean, the public in service in California, commission, they're being saved by the state. You know, that is. If I'm if I'm not incorrect there. Right, but that is the mechanism by which it happens, right? So the federal government wrote a letter and said you should keep it open. We have the civilian nuclear credit program. You should use it, all those things, right? But ultimately, like my point is the psychology matters locally, right? The the and I would suggest to you that this administration in our office has been more bullish about nuclear than nuclear advocates. Right, like when you talk to like nuclear advocates, they're saying, "Hey, Jigger, let me explain to you the forty-three reasons why your approach won't work." And I was like, "Well, that seems like a very productive way of using your brain power." So, so getting back to Diablo, I mean, my understanding is that California, in terms of the energy modeling going forward, was you know looking increasing like there's risks of blackouts. That Diablo Canyon is a clean firm source of uh, of electricity that was necessary to pin up the grid. Uh, potentially, you know, Gavin Newsom has some presidential ambitions and leaving behind a state that's teetering on the edge of blackouts frequently. That's what I see as the driver of the change on Diablo Canyon. It was not a nice to have nuclear reactor that people thought, wow, advanced nuclear is coming. We should keep it around. It was a need to have nuclear reactor. No, no, no. Do you disagree with that? Of course I disagree with it. They could have just built hundreds of gigawatts of diesel generators, which is, you know, like, so like there's lots of things that people can do. My point to you is that when Emery Lovins right, says to everybody that the money spent on nuclear is wasted and that we shouldn't spend any of it and we should just build more solar and wind and battery storage, right? That is a very comfortable thing to agree with when there's no prospects for building new nuclear anyway, right? Like, you know, why would you stand up to that argument if like no one's building new nuclear anyway, right? But because this administration has figured out a way to get people to be hopeful again, Right, the vast majority of climate people have completely changed their point of view on nuclear over the last two years because of the incessant amount of discussion that we're talking about, you know, with nuclear uh, designs, and that started before the Ukraine crisis. Right, I mean, as somebody who is probably, I think, the most followed person on energy in LinkedIn, right? Like, I've been talking about nuclear every single month since I got into office, and people are like, "Huh, well, Jigger's talking about it." Maybe there's something there. And then the secretary provided the most full-throated support of nuclear ever provided by a secretary of energy at the Guggenheim conference in early 2022. And people are like, well, crap, like how did that happen? And so so that then creates the space for Diablo Canyon to get saved, right? Like I just feel like people don't understand that like, you know, everything around here is like a shark. You have to keep swimming. 
if you stop swimming, then like you die, right? That's how it works, right? And so I just think that right now what we need is for the nuclear industry, yes, to red team things and yes, to provide their critical feedback. We want all of that. But they also need to say, what is it exactly that the U.S. and Canada are bringing to the table, right? That's different than the Japanese, the Koreans, the French, right? The Russians, right? And what's different is that we actually are figuring out the hard stuff. We're not taking shortcuts. We're not saying, oh, why don't we just put $200 billion of cold, hard cash out of the U.S. Department of Defense and just build a bunch of nuclear reactors? No, we're saying, how do we get Dominion or Duke or Energy Northwest and others to do new nuclear? Um, so, so Jigger, you were just saying that, um, in your opinion, there's been an overbuild of gas in the U.S. Um, I'm looking at, again, 2021 figures of new power generation in, in the U.S. Um, almost all new planned capacity at that point was wind, solar, and batteries, I think 81%. Um, natural gas was 16%. Uh, nuclear, they were still thinking they get Vogelon, I think, around that time was, was 3%. Um, so, I mean, do you see there being, uh, if, if natural gas has been overdeployed, um, almost all new generation is wind, solar, and batteries. Do you, do you feel like there's a overdeployment or that there's a need to diversify and balance the overall generation portfolio going forward? Yeah. But I mean, if we need to 2X the generation in this country, right, of clean generation, you don't do that by taking your foot off the gas on wind, solar, and batteries, you do that by unlocking all the clean firm generation technologies, right? So enhanced geothermal, low impact hydro and nuclear, right? They have to catch up. Like, I mean, you know, taking your foot off the gas on what's working doesn't make any sense at all. Do you feel that they're threatening grid reliability? Is that a, is that a major concern or driving no, up prices? There's actually no data whatsoever to support it. This is what I'm saying, right? When people like like spread these sort of rumors, you end up just in a bad place. Yeah, I, I guess, you know, I can see that pragmatism of, you know, frankly, what is available to deploy right now um, that is low carbon um, versus what's what's going to take time to develop and not taking your foot of the accelerator. That, that's, I think, a pretty sound argument. Um, in general, though, I feel like the, the examples of where wind and solar are being deployed um, at scale and most quickly um, are starting to run into some serious roadblocks with skyrocketing prices, with, you know, taking the German example, for instance, with uh, the threat of deindustrialization. Um, I, I guess that's that's a concern of mine. Um, you know, looking forward, and this kind of all of the aboveism approach, um, particularly when it comes to wind and solar, solar, is concerning for me for a failure of achieving actual deep decarbonization and ultimately requiring one-to-one backup. And generally, so far, that's been natural gas, even in one of the world's wealthiest and and most developed economies. Right, but why would you compare the United States of America to Germany? I mean, there's never been a more false comparison. Like, I mean, if you want to compare California to Germany, sure. Sure, sure. But the United States of America is like Europe. Well, let's compare like, let's let's it compare a very California. Large country. Let's compare California to Germany then. And and No, but I'm just all I'm saying to you is that the the United States of America has to build as much stuff as it can as quickly as it can. Not because of environmental regulation or anything else, although that's in there, but just because all of our coal plants are old. They're crazy old, right? I mean, our average coal plant right now is like 50 years old. And so they're just reaching the end of life, right? So as a result, we've got to replace that capacity over the next 15 years with other stuff. And if we replace it with natural gas, 
right? And 23% of the natural gas fleet doesn't work last Christmas, sending the PJM and, you know, Georgia Power and TVA into a tailspin where they almost had blackouts, right? That's not good. The same thing's true in Texas, where you have an over-reliance on gas and so much of the gas plants are not weatherized that, you know, they have huge problems in heat domes and other places, right? And so I just think that in general, if you want reliability and resiliency, you should have a diversified grid. And that's what the U.S. is pursuing. We're still less than 20% wind and solar in the United States. So it's not like wind and solar is like conquering all and becoming 70% of the grid. And I think when you look at the modeling efforts that we've paid for out of the National Renewable Energy Laboratory or with Chris Clack, who's now at Pattern Energy, or Jesse Jenkins at Princeton, I think everyone sees 40, 45, 50% clean firm as a really preferable option. But, you know, we got to get on with it, which is what the liftoff report said. Getting off the nuclear topic for a second, um, we have an episode dropping any minute now on advanced geothermal or enhanced geothermal. Um, what are your thoughts on that technology? It's extraordinary, right? But the first but the first plants are going to come in at whatever it is, like 15 cents a kilowatt hour, and then the next one will be at 14, and then 13, there's got a learning curve that they got to get through. And I do think that they can probably get to seven cents a kilowatt hour or so, probably long-term, which is really where we're saying nth of a kind nuclear will get to as well. And frankly, hydro has got to be at seven cents a kilowatt hour too, right? When you look at hydro, um, you know, like uh, next generation turbines that are fish friendly and all these things, we have 37 gigawatts of hydro that need to be relicensed over the next 20 years, right? They're going to all have to upgrade themselves. And they're basically lecturing me about how the 1920s turbines that they still operate on are the best in the world and they've never failed them yet. And I was like, I get it, man. I will celebrate that turbine as well in the museum that I put it into. But we got to switch to the next generation turbine that generates 15% more power, is more fish friendly, and can actually respond to market signals in a far more dynamic fashion, which the current turbines can't do. And that's going to be more like seven cents a kilowatt hour, not two and a half cents a kilowatt hour. Okay, Jigger, unfortunately, we're having a number of technical issues, um, which has uh, created some, some difficulties. Um, so we're going to have to cut it here. Um, but listen, it's been a real pleasure. Um, I appreciate the combativeness. Um, frankly, I think it's much more interesting for myself and my listeners. Um, so thank you for making the time to come on Decouple. My pleasure, Chris. And I love the work you're doing. And hopefully everybody sees through our actions that we're really trying to make sure that the nuclear industry here in North America uh, scales up, right, fast. And, you know, to be able to meet the needs of um, the world, right? And we want to not only do it here, but export these solutions around the world. And frankly, people want our solutions, right? They want U.S. Canadian solutions um, to really be able to, um, you know, get themselves off of coal. And I think we're all committed to getting that done. But I do think we've got to figure out how to, you know, reduce some of the noise and some of the um, the volatility and some of the, you know, sort of inner fighting and really focus on how we get through all the steps. There's a lot of steps to get through to really create a, a confident posture here um, that we can build off of. Well, I certainly do appreciate the bullishness of the Department of Energy. I know that the Canadian federal government has been listening, particularly in the aftermath of the, uh, the IRA. Um, and that's definitely played a role in uh, at least federally Canada's pivot back towards nuclear energy. Um, so, uh, well, I look forward to next time we talk, you actually being bullish. 
<laughs> I'm a defensive pessimist, I believe. That's my, my formal diagnosis. <laughs> but we're getting well, there. Well, I appreciate we're it. We're getting there. Big things coming in Canada. We hope to put you all to shame in the States with our 6,000 megawatts of new nuclear. A uh, little friendly competition never hurt anyone. So uh, get on it, Jigger. Oh, man. Deploy, if deploy, that's deploy. the competition, we're all, we're all winners. <laughs> all right. Thanks again. Thanks.